Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Hello, my name is Jörgis Sundqvist and I'm from Sweden. I'm out hunting materials for trying to find some good wood to make items out of. I'm a part of an old self-sufficient tradition from Sweden, which is called slöjd. And the word slöjd is special because it means being smart or being practical, taking care of materials where you live and make the most out of them. So in this video, we're going to talk more about materials and function and about technical things like the tools and how to use them and not focusing so much on the items. I was just walking out here and I found this wonderful bird just yelling at me he wanted to be a spatula. And you can see this angles you have here on this side, very smooth and nice bark and it's going to split so good. I'm going to take away this branch though because it's going to be waste. Cut it up here and down here and then try to split it. Why does it feel so good to work with rock and roll and to the beat of the axe. I just don't know. Rock and roll and rhythm goes together. And the beat of the axe and the patterns goes together with a deep understanding of the symbols of mankind during decades. Rock and roll has origins in African working songs as answer and call songs. Today the base of blues, soul, gospel, and rock and roll. And it can be seen in African fabrics as patterns conducting the working songs in the fields. Where work, music, and rhythm beat together. My name is Jogi Sundqvist and I call myself Surolle. I'm a professional sloider, woodworker, or maybe a wood designer. And I have no professional education. I'm raised by tradition and by my father, Ville Sundqvist. Some calls me craftsman, but I'm not an artist. Definitions, anyway, what are they worth? All I want is to make useful, nice-looking and user-friendly objects like stools and chairs and benches and cupboards. And in the rich and broken craft tradition that we still actually have here in Västerbotten. And to explain my work for you, I have to build a room for you. A creative room with four walls which represents my boundaries and actually my greatest freedom. Freedom of expression is not working without limits. Those limits are tools and material. But within them I have an incredible variety and diversity. And there I can be who I want to be, Surulle, a craftsman. And my aesthetic expression is formed by these walls. And I will now describe the four walls in this room. First, we have the material wall, which is here. When I'm out in the forest wood hunting, I have to be very careful about which tree I should cut to get the right strength, flexibility, and bending without gnarly knots and fibers. Wood is much stronger if form follows fibers. Form follow fibers is the mantra. Therefore, 
A spoon has to have an L shape, so the thin curved blade can hold for over 100 years. So it's a search for individuals. So when I walk in the woods, I put on special glasses to see this kind of material. I have lenses for straight-grown wood and special glasses for bended curves. And it's a special communication between us about their design. We talk the tree language. They talk to, to me and they say, I want to be a curved leg, or here's your hobo stick. All I have to do is to ask them politely if, for permission to cut them down. Don't you want to be a sexy curved leg for a little share? Hmm. Or maybe a back pad from a sofa. And they say, yes, finally, I'm free from my roots. And back in the workshop, we take a wrestling match with each other. We go in a clinch. And sometimes a banded wooden piece gives me a straight uppercut in the workshop and says, I do not want to be a sexy leg, I want to be a backpack. <laughs> so, as the beatnik Jack Kerouac should have said, we gotta have the right beatitude to get life right. Life has to sway and swing and rock and roll and I'm fine with that. It's a process and it's a dialogue with the material. When I choose an, the ultimate material for my work, wall number two comes in, and that's tools and tool skills. I just love this surface coming from the cutting tool inherited for generations, a technique refined for thousands of years, a kind of assembled aesthetic form, which is intimately associated with tools and technology. My production system is based on handcraft. It's a chopping block and an axe and a knife and a shaving horse, a fro and a club, of course, and some saws and drills. And quality comes out when it's easy to work. I want to show you some grasp that my father Ville showed me. First we have the power grass with straight on, like that. Cutting towards your body, like that. The crossed thumb grasp, like that. And of course we have the scissor grasp, which is using your chest like this. We also call this the chicken wing grasp. <laughs> Not to mention the tin can opener, which is like this. I think we have about 10 special grasps which make the knife irreplaceable. Also, we have techniques. We have function and strength, which is very important and radical in useful objects. Sometimes we use dry and raw material together to make everlasting joints. The third wall is behind me, and that's tradition. The word sloid refers to know-how-to, smart, or do-it-yourself, DIY. And it's still in our dialect here in Westerbotten. It's the Viking Age word, schlög, which is sloid nowadays. And it means crafty. But we do never say that we are crafty and practical. No, we say we are not unpractical, not uncrafty, or in Swedish, int oslög. And every day I'm working, I'm connected to my family's more than 10 generations work with wood, making furniture and household items. And I have a deep respect for their tradition and skills because they knew that they had to live with what they had made for the rest of their lives. 
this is a sort of responsibility for themselves, which is embedded in the items that they had made, which was about love and caring and to pass on to next generation. And this wall of tradition contains a story about my father, Ville, when he got started for real. The story about Ville and his horse making. He was about 12 years old this time, and he was working with a horse and asked his, my grandpa, Arvid, if he could make drawings of a horse. And he said, why do you want to make drawings when you can make a real wooden horse? And my dad said, isn't that very difficult and hard to do? And then my grandpa Arvid replied, no, no, you just have to take away everything which is not a horse. So we made this when he was, when he was 12 years old. So this tells us how natural processing wood was for the subsistent farming craftsmen. How the three-dimensional design was about people. And people, that's the fourth wall, the folk art wall. A story about all of you, about all the longing and love and desire, incantation, spells and magic, which is embedded in the handmade objects that's been made. And especially when they were love gifts. When a guy would encounter a girl, he had to show her how skilled worker he was. So he wanted to express himself, considering himself not uncrafty, of course. So he put a love spoon in his pocket as a part of the engagement ceremony and went to the girl, and if the girl raised interest, he knew he could ask for her hand. So the fourth wall in the creative room is about communication between people. Art and design in traditional craft is talking directly to the users. Use me, love me, take care of me, because when I made it, I took care. And now we come to the end of the story, why I call myself Surolle. This is about 15 years ago. And I'm standing in my workshop. I just made a prototype of a stool. And um, I forced myself to make progression and to make crafts that are carved and cut, perfect in strength and function, but with an older, more rustic and uh, coarser expression. And I'm in a crossroad, wanting to make renewal and craft based on the tradition. And all of a sudden, my daughter Hilary, nine years old, comes into the workshop and asks me, who made this stool? Strange, I'm her woodworking father, so, hmm. But about that time, I was kind of connecting to my ancestors and thinking about them, how they lived their lives, and I was identifying myself with my tradition. So I said, well, it's an old guy. His name is Ole Olsson, and he's an outsider, a sour outsider from the woodlands. And she didn't think this was very strange at all. She just asked me, what kind of animals does he have? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, he has lots of animals, lots of pets. Okay, she said, and then she disappeared in the house. And after a while, she comes back and she has named horses, sheep, goats in drawings. And then there was this guy, Surulle. I just looked at him. I see these pictures and I realized that she made drawings that showed and personalized my deepest longing for making crafts. And then he became an alter ego. And I started to have deep and renewal discussions with Surolle and played around with him in my workshop. And with this schizophrenic transformation to Surolle, he's a dear, dear friend now, right now. 
something happened. A vein started to flow. A flood of ideas came up for Sloyd and Kraft, Quilt, Quilt, colors and patterns. Objects that I simply would like to call Sloyd. Thank you. So let's talk about the tools we'll use to carve our spoons. The first tool is, is the uh, Sloyd knife. And uh, the word Sloyd refers to craft in Swedish. And it's the knife we use typically to do all kinds of general work. Uh, but in spoon carving, it's, uh, it's the main tool. It has a long tapered blade um, for, for getting into tight spots and, and also wide here to do um, powerful wasting grips. The other tool we'll need is the uh, spoon hook or hook tool. Um, these are also known as uh, crook knives, um, but uh, generally they're hook knives. And uh, you can see it has a curved blade that, that matches the spoon shape. It's sharpened on one side, um, but they can be sharpened on two sides. Um, um, this one, this one's sharpened on one. And then what I have here is um, a custom-made knife that I built. Um, it's a larger hook uh, made for, for finished cuts. And here's another small Sloyd knife. Also, just as useful as the long one, sometimes you want a smaller knife to, uh, to do even finer work where the long knife uh, kind of gets in the way and you can risk getting cut. The main, uh, the main roughing tool is, is our axe. Um, this is a, a handmade axe, but any hardware store axe will do the job. Um, it just has to be sharp. Um, and, and you know a fairly short handle. And one of the crudest tools, but very necessary, is is the club. We use this for for um, splitting splitting our blanks. So for carving a good spoon, we need to pick good materials. Um, there's basically two choices. There's straight wood and, and, and crooked wood. And I have a, a, a piece of birch here that's split out of a larger, a larger tree. Um, and you can see there's, there's always knots, so we have to work around it. Um, but birch is a good wood because it's, uh, it's straight-grained, uh, strong and light, not too hard, not too soft. Um, here's a piece of cherry. And for crooked wood, it becomes a little bit more of a challenge, but we can carve a spoon that follows the, the fiber and um, we can make a, a stronger spoon. Other good woods are maple, um, the, the uh, the diffuse porous trees, whereas the open porous trees like oak and ash aren't so good. Um, they're prone to splitting and um, they tend to be problematic when you're carving with hand tools. So apple, fruit woods, uh, cherry, birch, maple, uh, the soft maples, but even lilac, um, buckthorn, um, those are all good spoon carving woods. The main type of wood we like to use when we're carving spoons is, is green wood. Um, the, the wood is soft and supple, and under the knife and axe, we can, we can carve it easily and efficiently. Um, when the wood is hard and dry, it's really hard on our tools. It's also um, it's hard on our bodies to carve. We're using simple tools, axe and knife, so we want to have um, all the advantages that we can gain. And so greenwood is, is really what we want to use. Greenwood is trees that it's fresh, uh, freshly felled. Um, we go out and uh, into the forest. We pick our materials. 
We look for um, you know straight wood or crooked wood um, with our project in mind, and um, you know fell the tree. And when it's fresh, then we we take it back and we work it with simple tools. Some trees will last longer when they're when their wind falls. Um, birch, in particular, with its bark, um, will will rot from the inside out. So some trees you have to be careful of when you uh, when you harvest um, and store that that they don't rot. But other otherwise, um, drying is the real problem. So keeping them longer lengths and um, stored close to the ground in the shade helps to keep things moist longer. Um, the other thing is to cut them uh, spoon blanks and then put them in the freezer, wrap them in a plastic bag and put them in the freezer. That's another good way of, uh, of storing green wood, especially for spoons. Um, larger projects, obviously, that's a little bit more problem problematic. So you can get green wood. Uh, if you're living in the city, there's uh, tree trimmers um, that you can go and, and try to d develop a relationship with and um, try to you know try to work with them to get to get limb wood um, there's also municipal waste areas that usually you can you can frequent and, and pick up bits and pieces here and there or if you live in the forest or know people with, that are landowners of course you could ask them to harvest wood Today, we're going to look at the tools I use for spoon carving and talk a little about building your own spoon carving kit. We'll start with the basics, then look at some additional tools and finally possible upgrades to those tools. There's a link in the description that has an article with links to all of the tools mentioned, plus links to some other options as well. The basics. You want to get yourself a knife, get yourself this knife. The Mora 106. They retail for about $25 all over the internet. It's a fantastic knife and honestly the best value out there. This quite long blade gives you a very narrow tip which means it's great for carving tighter concave curves. It's a nice laminated steel birch handle. Crappy little plastic sheath but that's fine. It works. There's not many other options better than this uh, in this price range. Next. The hook knife. New and improved Mora 164 is probably the best, most available hook knife. So that's an important caveat. It's not a great hook knife, but it's easy to find and it will definitely get you started. These retail for about $40, again, all over the internet. And it comes with quite a nice leather sheath to protect your edge. We'll talk about some other uh, upgrades your hook knives in a moment but this will definitely get you started and get you started quickly if you get yourself some spoon blanks then you can pretty much start carving in my workshops i've noticed that axe work and sourcing raw materials tend to be the main barriers towards people starting spoon carving so getting some spoon blanks from a maker removes these barriers and gets you carving sooner eventually you want to be making these on your own Next, sandpaper. Everybody uses sandpaper when they start out. Everyone. It's the easiest way to tidy up an almost finished spoon without ruining it while you're still building your carving skills. You get a finished spoon and don't end up hating the process. What we've got here is a selection of high grit sandpapers. We've got some 1500, some 3000, some 5000 and 7000. We'll be using these to sharpen our tools. So in addition to these, you'll want something flat to wrap them around, to, cut, uh, to sharpen your straight knife and the outside of your hook knife. And then you'll want a wooden dowel to wrap them around to sharpen the inside of your uh, hook knife. You can also see I've put some green honing compound straight on top of these wooden pieces. So these are now my strops as well. So some sandpaper, flat piece of wood, a round piece of wood, green honing compound, and you can start sharpening your tools as well. 
either you've carved a few spoons and you want to broaden your capabilities or you're confident that spoon carving is something you want to take a deep dive into, here's what to add to the basics. The first thing that you're probably going to want is some sort of saw. Uh, this is a Japanese style pool saw, but any sort of crosscut saw or pruning saw is needed. One of the many great things about spoon carving is that the raw material literally grows on trees. In trees? It's wood. The raw material is green wood that you can usually find for free. Even though I live in a city, there's more wood coming down each week than I could ever hope to get through. Most of the time, it won't be the right length. So get a pruning saw or some sort of crosscut saw. I had a no-name hardware store crosscut for years until the handle broke. Really doesn't have to be anything special. Next is an axe. This axe is from Greenhaven Forge. It's a fantastic little budget option for under $100. If you're just starting out with spoon carving, get one of these. If you're in Europe or the UK, Wood Tools, the Robin Wood Axe, they do something similar for more or less the same price. Well under $100. Fantastic little carving hatchet that will get you started without breaking the bank. To go with your shiny new axe, you'll need a surface to carve on, some sort of chopping block. I'm in the process of making myself a new one for my workshop. To make sure you don't miss out on that tutorial, hit the subscribe button and that video will be coming out soon. This is an ADS. It's a weird love child of an axe and a gouge. Uh, having an ADS will let you hollow out spoons quicker. It also opens the door to carving bowls and cups. This 50mm Hans Carlson ADS works great, but ignore the shoddy replacement handle I made for it. I do need to change this. Getting a draw knife was a game changer for me. Having both hands on the tool makes it very safe to use. It engages your large back muscles, letting you perform very powerful cuts with a lot of control. It's a nice tool for in between the rough work of an axe and the fine detailing of the knife. I've had a lot of luck with the secondhand market when it comes to draw knives. Get a six to eight inch straight draw knife with a clean looking edge. They're pretty simple to sharpen up. Just as an axe needs a chopping block, the draw knife needs the wood you're working on to be clamped into place. For that purpose, I use a spoon mule. Earth finishing knife. So this can be a slightly smaller knife than your regular Sloyd knife for more fiddly cuts. I have this one from Dave Cockcroft. It could also be a second Mora 106 that you keep aside for finishing cuts. A finishing knife is basically just a second knife you keep super sharp and save from the more abusive rough cuts. Really nice to have, but not at all necessary. This is a fro. It's a splitting tool often used to make shingles. It's nice to have a splitting tool that's really long. Sometimes I'm splitting up like 16 inch diameter logs. So having something that can rest most of the way across for an accurate split is really nice. The removable handle gives you some nice leverage when you're trying to open up a split. For spoon carving, totally unnecessary, but it's a nice little splitting tool. You can do an awful lot of really accurate splitting with a wooden wedge that you've made yourself. The throw's nice, but if you're having issues splitting little wooden wedges, they're great. So those are all of the tools that you need or might want for spoon carving. Let's look at some of the upgrades to those tools that we've already mentioned. The first upgrade I would recommend would be to replace the Mora 164. If you're happy to spend the money, you can even skip getting one of these and go for one of the other options I'm gonna discuss. Problem with a lot of these is that they're harder to find than the Mora 164. So this will get you carving sooner. If you're looking to have the fewest tools possible, then I'd recommend getting something like this Scorp from Lee Stofer. It will give you the greatest versatility. Uh, you don't need right and left-handed hook knives, which are required for scoops with deep vertical walls. And the compound curve lets you carve a variety of spoon bowls. My most used hollowing tool is this 70mm Tuca Cam from Hans Carlson. The large radius gives a more gentle sweep and it makes cosplaying Captain Hook a lot easier. It's a great hook knife. 
My most used regular hook knife would be the faucet hook from Nick Westerman. There's quite a wait list for his tools, so I recommend hopping on it now. He also only sells unhandled tools. So if you're not confident about handling a tool yourself, don't worry. There's plenty of folks out there who would be happy to provide that service for you. Uh, this is a, an excellent hook knife. I've also got a similar hook knife. This again, made from Hans Carlson. I really like the round tang for hooking my finger around. Uh, it's a, a, a great little hook knife that's very comfortable to use. If you're looking for more hook knife options, there are other hook knives that I've used but don't own, and those are all in the document linked in the description below. I own a variety of different dedicated carving hatchets. If you watch my review of the Wayfarer Axe, you'll get to see them all. Carving hatchets tend to have quite an upswept toe. They tend to be bearded and have quite a curve to the handle, weighing in around 700 or so grams. At the moment, my favorite axe is this the Kautoff small carver uh, but it's just a personal preference if you read the document in the description below I'll outline all of the different axes that I've owned or tried if you get one getting an additional axe isn't gonna add much utility to your toolbox but it's fun owning a bunch of axes the Mora 106 could easily be your forever knife a handmade Floyd knife will offer upgrades in the form of better steel, usually greater comfort and an improved edge geometry. A beginner is less likely to benefit from these differences, so start with the Mora 106. Learn how to sharpen on it, reshape the handle so it better fits your grip, carve a bunch of spoons with it. Then, if you want something a little fancier, you'll have a better idea of exactly what features suit your carving needs. While sandpaper will give you an excellent edge, and on that account there's no reason to change, I do however find it to be a little wasteful. A piece of sandpaper can only be used on a couple of tools before it's no longer cutting steel efficiently, so sharpening stones feel like a less wasteful option. Uh, I have a set of Japanese water stones. They're all Shapton stones, but they're a mix of their glass stones uh, and their Kurumaku stones. Water stones are great. They're a little messy uh, and they need regular flattening to keep them cutting properly. So another popular choice are diamond stones. I've never really got into diamond stones, but as their diamond abrasives stuck to lumps of steel, they don't tend to dish out like water stones. I think I just prefer the feel of water stones. A further sharpening upgrade and easily the most expensive piece of kit in this video would be getting a Tormek. A sharpening wheel is the only way to put a hollow grind on an edge. Uh, the biggest advantage of a hollow grind is that they're quicker to resharpen and you only remove steel from the edge and the back of the bevel. Tormek systems easily the best out there. Uh, I teach carving workshops, so I have eight sets of axes and knives and hook knives that I need to keep sharp, as well as my personal collection of shiny sharp things. Having jigs that can give you the perfect bevel angle every time is kind of amazing. It's expensive, but if you decide you need one, it's a really nice piece of kit. An upgrade to the crosscut saw would be a chainsaw. Bucking a 16 inch diameter log by hand isn't much fun, so I kind of love my electric chainsaw. It's a bit of a wimp, but it's quiet and I can use it in my workshop without choking on fumes. It works for me. If I had to replace it, I'd probably go with a corded chainsaw as the battery life isn't great. So those are the tools I use for spoon carving. If you like this video, please give it a thumbs up. And if you're not already, consider subscribing to my channel. So my name's Barn, I'm a spoon carver. Um, I've got a little shop on Hackney Road in London. In, in the shop I make, make my spoons and sell them to the public. Uh, I'm making a cooking spoon out of a piece of cherry using a nice big spoon knife. It's one of my top selling spoons. I've been selling spoons for I guess the last four years um, and I spent most of that time Properly off grid, living in the woods and source materials there, going into towns and cities and street selling uh, with my peddler's certificate. 
I spent a lot of time uh, living living in woods, and I had a little bivy bag and a tarpaulin to string up. It's more adaptable um, than a tent, and um, it's nicer. It's kind of open. It's closer. You're closer to the wood, I think, that way. I'd have my little fire and make cups of tea and axe out my spoons in the wood and then walk, walk them into a town and um, carve them on the street when I was selling them. So I start with a bit of wood, which I'll then split using an axe and a mallet. And then I shape, shape the wood um, with an axe. I'll, I'll axe it to rough shape. Carve it with a knife. Like this. And then when I need to hollow it out, I use my bent knife. So it's those three tools. This is uh, this is what I call a tooker cam, which is just a Welsh word for a bent knife. What's great about it is it's a folk tool, so you know you don't need a huge workshop um, and loads of machines and workbenches. It is literally just your body, a knife, and a bit of wood. I'm very much a fan of trying to spread the word about axes and knives. I think they're, they're beautiful tools, and it's ridiculous that um, people stop using them. They're really relevant and useful woodworking tool, and they're much more appropriate for individuals than big, heavy machinery. This is cherry. Close grain, you don't want something that's kind of open and porous really for spoons. Um, this wood has actually come from Victoria Park where they've, uh, they've had to remove some cherry trees unfortunately. Um, but it's nice that the wood gets to, gets to be recycled. And it's great that this wood has been sourced from less than a couple of miles from where my shop is. Brilliant. human element increases biodiversity. There's very few systems where we are involved in working where we don't actually damage biodiversity. If you take humans away from coppicing, trees still grow and they turn into big trees, but the biodiversity will disappear. The wildflowers will be shaded out, you'll get um, less butterflies, you won't have habitat for things like dormice, lizards and things I've got here, they won't like it because it'll be too shady and dark. So your, your biodiversity decreases. So it's an amazing system where our role of coming in and cutting and getting the materials that we need to then go and build houses and things from is actually increasing biodiversity. If I take my own house, which we'll look at later, that the oldest, um, <coughs> the oldest coppice stems in that house were about 30 years old. So that means they've been left to regrow for 30 years and then I came in and cut them. Well I built the house 15 years ago now. So the regrowth of those poles has grown on 15 years. In another 15 years I can go back to the very same trees which I built my house from, cut it again and build another house. And meanwhile they'll be regrowing another set and you can go on and on. So when you look at the sustainability of supplying materials, it's very, very hard to argue against. So you're getting a, a supply of materials on a regular cycle, um, depending on the age and diameter you let the timber grow onto. Um, so different, different cycles. I'm, I have a short rotation cycle, which um, is three to four years. Anyone want to guess what three-year-old sweet chestnut might be used for? It's on the National Health Walking Stick. If you've ever um, twisted your ankle or something and ended up in A&E and they're giving you a wooden walking stick, it was probably cut over the hill here. So it's, it's got a British standard on it. It's one of the few coppice products that have. And um, so three-year-old sweet chestnut is used for National Health Walking Stick. Four-year-old, and you're getting onto things like yurt poles, woven fencing. 
once you get to sort of eight to 12 year old, you're into sort of rustic furniture, you're starting to get to a size where you can split out lath or laths from. I'll be showing you some examples later. Um, once you go on beyond that, then you're getting sort of 15 to 20 years, you're getting into stock fencing, 20 years plus, you're getting into post and rail, 30 years plus, you're getting into um, roundwood building materials, and you're also getting into shapes for the roofing tiles um, to come out of that sort of age material. So there's a, there's a constant flow of different materials that come out of sweet chestnut. However, back to plantation forestry, this was very much planted as single species, large plantation. Um, <clears throat> when I took it on, I met with the Forestry Commission officer here, and his recommendation was that I took it all out over two years. So it's a six, six acre plot, three acres one year, sorry, six, six hectare plot, three acres one year, three, three hectares one year, three hectares next year. Um, <clears throat> and I looked at it, and I sort of looked at the value at the time for it, and most of the trees were this sort of diameter, very tall, so I was really looking at um, pulpwood, and it worked out that by the time I'd felled it, extracted it, got it to roadside, it was worth about £12 a ton. And I weighed it up, and I looked at the labour and the equipment I had, and I reckoned it would just about cover the fuel for the source. And I thought, I'm not going to do that, let's look at some different options. Well, <clears throat> the reason it was difficult was because the plantation had never been thinned. So that meant all the trees were tall and thin and hadn't put on any girth. So sawmills aren't interested in small diameter round. Um, but someone like myself who builds with roundwood as a construction timber, having tall, thin, straight poles, fantastic. And there was a little bit of work done um, in, oh, it looks dumb, I think it was 99 or 80, 98, 99, testing um, roundwood for construction. And it was done at a number of universities around Europe. And the bit that went on in the UK was testing um, the roundwood for its strength in bending and compression. So basically they were getting like 100 logs particular diameter, particular species, certain amount of knots per meter, and they were had massive great big um, jacks, and, and they were just bending them till they snapped, and compressing them downwards until they bowed and snapped. And they did all these tests on a lot of different timbers, and what came out the tops of the tests they did was large. So here we've got a very strong timber. Now, the added advantage of it here is because it hadn't been thinned, the growth rings, puts on a ring of growth every year, the growth rings are much closer together than they would be in a plantation that had been thinned and allowed to expand. Well, with a softwood, having the growth rings closer together gives you a stronger timber. So here I've got potentially fantastic poles, very strong timber. I left school at 15 and I've always worked on the land, um, had a, just a, a knowledge that I wanted to be outside and tried a lot of different land-based practices from um, horticulture, agriculture, um, <clears throat> fruit tree growing, landscaping, different types of farming and kind of, to me, they all come under one real banner which is just working with the land and growing things on it and tending it and woods to me were a natural progression and it was the end of the 1980s and I was living in the next village down from here and while I was there I got a leaflet from my letterbox talking about um, rainforest destruction talking about um, areas in the Amazon the size of Belgium being burnt every week and I was quite young and naive and I sort of went out there feeling I must do something about this and while I was out there, although I saw some pretty horrific destruction of forest, I met some amazing people and they kind of gave me a, a pattern that I saw in life of the way I wanted to live and I refer to it as the pattern of the forest dweller. So they were people who basically resided in one place for generations. So they got to know one bit of land intrinsically well. So they would know not just 
what's growing on there now, but they'd know where their wild mushrooms are going to come up, where their medicines are going to grow, when a particular species of bird is likely to arrive at a particular time of the year. And from that, they were then able to cultivate fruit trees, gardens around the area, on the pathways they walked, and harvest some of their own timber and make their own buildings from it. And um, that pattern to me seems just a, a very ideal, sustainable way of living. So I came back to the UK and thought I'd have a go at that. Very fortunate that I acquired this bit of land by a bit of barter and um, started to set out on that path. Um, a little naive and unaware of planning law at the time, um, which um, caught me out a bit to start with. I was originally living under canvas here and um, I thought traditionally people had always done that working in the woods. I was making charcoal, coppicing, um, but um, I realised I'd fall, fallen foul of planning law. And then a long process went on trying to, um, I guess, justify to the planners about what I was doing. Hi there, welcome. Um, so that was really the, the start of my, my story here. And I guess the got a lot to thank the planners for because probably without them pushing me to get me to fit into a particular planning box I might not have ended up building a house I might still be under a bit of canvas so um, I can I can be quite thankful to them for that um, I have quite a lot of sympathy with planners um, I think it's very difficult to judge between somebody who is genuinely wanting to work and make a living from the land and somebody who is purely speculating on the land then sell it on at high profit so it's a difficult juggling match that they have to, to work out and um, I hope that now I've been here I'm in my 26th year here they realize I'm here to stay um, so I think um, hopefully I've, I've shown them that I was genuine in what I've been doing so that that is really um, story of how I got here I say I've been here 26 years I can make a very bold statement I know this woodland better than any other human being on the planet. It's probably true. Doesn't mean I know it very well. Um, I've only been here 26 years. Um, maybe two or three generations down the line, people here might be able to say they know it a bit better. Every year I find new things here. I just make discoveries. It's a constant learning process. And um, being on one bit of land for a long, bit of, long period of time is an incredible teacher. And um, that's really... Um, yeah, what I'm loving and thriving in and being here is, is that constant learning year by year. So there you go, it's a bit of background. Um, so today I'm going to take you off into the woods to start with and kind of share with you what goes on here, how the systems work, what I'm doing, which is a little bit more unusual maybe than some similar woodlands. And then we'll come back here and then this afternoon we're going to have a look at I call the sort of my zone one area around here, which is kind of the area of activity, the yards, the workshops, the how the development of what I do with buildings has gone on, and then we'll have a um, work our way around and then finish up having a look at the house. Um, anyone who's interested afterwards, um, there is um, Lodsworth Larder in the village, which is in, in the village of Lodsworth. That is a community shop I built a few years ago, and that kind of shows kind of how the evolution of the way of building has moved on a bit. And it's a lovely little shop, and it's next door to the pub as well, so it's worth a visit. I'm a traditional bowl turner. I make wooden bowls on a foot-powered lathe. When I started, there was nobody in the UK using this kind of traditional lathe. And when I saw that, that lathe in the museum, I thought that's a, a real shame that that skill has died out. Um, and I wanted to recreate it, to learn the skill um, so it wasn't easy, I had no one to teach me, but I could see the photographs of the old man who had used to do the craft 
and I saw the tools and the lathe and then very slowly, slowly, over six or seven years, I learned to do the craft. I was a forester before I was a craftsperson. I worked in forestry, uh, managing trees with a chainsaw. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that wood is a is carbon neutral and if I if I make a bowl from wood and people love that bowl and they form a relationship with it now people will eat from that bowl every day for 20 years um, and they treasure it so um, it's reducing people's environmental footprint on the world I think in the, the modern world, um, particularly as the world becomes more digital, many people are spending all their lives looking at screens. And um, in some ways, some of modern life is, is very bad. We're trashing the planet and there's a lot of bad things that are happening. But we shouldn't look at the past and say, oh, it was always better. We, there are some things when we can look at the past and inspire new things for the future so working with wood even if it's just uh, for half an hour or an hour in the evening carving a spoon can really help people reconnect with something tangible it's part of what makes us human i think i've maybe probably uh i've turned between 25 and, and 30,000 bowls in my life. And all of those bowls are out there on people's tables, being used every day. And that's, I think, that is probably the most meaningful thing to me in my bowl turning work. People will often write me letters or emails and say, um, you know, I've eaten my breakfast every day from one of your bowls for 15 years and it, it adds a little pleasure every day. And, and to me then, that's very meaningful for me. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing for a treat to end up um, as a bowl like that, that has that extra life going on. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend. <laughs>